Chapter 3. Blood and Fire. Frank, it's your turn to give your testimony. Captain Spillett looked straight at him. Frank glanced around the open-air ring. Those bandmen had been Christians for years. Why didn't the captain ask one of them to speak? After all, it was only five days since he had made that decision, kneeling beside his bed. Five wonderful days. Already he knew in his heart he would be a preacher, but he wasn't ready to preach yet. Besides, his old mates were standing a few yards away chanting, Salvan army, saved from sin, all going to heaven, in a kerosene tin. All for a change. Salvation army, all gone balmy. He shouldn't have told Alex Bryson what he had planned to do that night as they cycled into town. His old friends were already saying, that's the end of Houston. The bandsman standing next to him gave him a little push of encouragement, sending him halfway into the ring. He felt that he had better do the rest willingly. He stumbled over his own words. I, I've given my heart to Jesus and, and I am glad I have. He wanted to sing and shout. Speaking in the open air hadn't been as difficult as telling his boss and workmates. His Christian boss was delighted, but the rest decided to knock religion out of him before it could take root. They were not going to work with a religious nut. You mean you won't be swearing around here anymore? That's right, and I won't be smoking anymore, either. Frank meant it. They applied pressure by trying to force a lit cigarette between his lips while they held him on the ground. Frank spat as hard as he could. They tried again. Once more, Frank spat it out. At last, they grew tired of this game. Instead, they rubbed rotten cauliflowers in his face and threw him in the creek to put the fire out. But the fire didn't go out. Giving his life to the Lord meant total commitment for Frank. Immediately, he plunged into the life of the Corps as a Salvation Army soldier. Proudly, he stood in his new uniform under the yellow, red and blue flag, for the simple enrolment service in which he promised to be true to God and the army. He had enlisted in an army which proved to be the best training ground he could have had. This was warfare. You didn't question orders. From then on, Sunday was a full day beginning with 7.30am knee drill, as the early morning prayer meeting was called. Home for breakfast and back for the 10 o'clock open air and the 11 o'clock holiness meeting. Afternoons were occupied with Sunday school teaching. The day finished with an open air and evening meeting. There were very few nights free. Tuesday was Corps Cadets, a youth training class where they studied the Bible. It was also in this class that Frank first learned to conduct singing, prepare talks and memorise five Bible verses a week. Skills which enabled him to be more effective in many areas of ministry. Wednesday was band practice and there was always an open air on Friday nights and a youth meeting on Saturdays. Frank wouldn't miss any of these, no matter what was on the army, came first. You might as well take your blankets, his father told him. His parents could never understand this kind of commitment. From the beginning, witnessing was a normal part of Frank's Christian life. His first convert was an old alcoholic. Many had tried to lead him to the Lord, but the old fellow wouldn't yield. Frank didn't know this when he first talked to the derelict. All he knew was a compassion for this wreck of humanity. He already knew that William Booth, the army's founder, always told his people, 
Go for the souls and go for the worst. This old man must surely be amongst the worst. On Sunday nights, old Fred leaned against the shop front, swearing and cursing, while the open air was in progress. When the band marched back to the hall for the meeting, old Fred staggered along behind them. He knew the hall would be warm and he liked the music. How much of the sermon the old fellow grasped, Frank could not tell. But when he put his arms around the dirty, lonely, old man, he listened. Fred, Jesus loves you. Won't you come to the penitent form and give your life to him? This time, Fred allowed himself to be led to the altar where he flooded the floor with tears of repentance. He never touched alcohol again. Instead, he became the colour sergeant, carrying the flag in front of the band. The fires of evangelism and the wonder of what God could do in a person's life burned in Frank's spirit. These beginning days were not all easy going. At first, God seemed to surround him with a fence, which kept the devil from him. When it was removed, there came a flood of temptation and difficulties. In spite of his resistance, when his workmates tried to force a cigarette into his mouth, he didn't find it as easy to give up smoking as he had expected. He'd throw the cigarettes away, but as the craving increased, he'd go back to find them. This was a problem he decided to share with his youth leader. Why can't I give up on smoking? I've prayed about it, and it doesn't work, he complained. Young man, you are trying in your own strength. Trust the Lord to help you. Don't throw them away. Keep them in your shirt pocket, and when you attempt to take authority over them in the name of Jesus, she told him. Frank loves to declare that if a smoker didn't take another cigarette, he'd never smoke again. Gradually, he found spiritual battles easier to win as his commitment to prayer and Bible study increased his spiritual strength. Frank knew that those who prophesied that his religion wouldn't last were wrong. It's only a flash in the pan, the unbelievers said. Perhaps this stirred the stubbornness of the Irish in this nature so that he determined to press on. God had taken him up when other people said he'd never make it. Captain Spillett had more faith. He encouraged Frank by giving him responsibility. His patience with a new convert was infinite, taking time to explain difficult doctrines and scriptures. When he would encourage, there were always some to discourage. Why doesn't the Salvation Army baptise people? The Bible commands it. Or again, why doesn't the army keep the sacrament of communion? Frank asked Captain Spillett. Well, William Booth believed that the communion was no more important than the washing of feet, as recorded in John 13, verse 8 and 9. Besides, the use of fermented wine would be a temptation to converted alcoholics. His other problem, should women leaders serve at the table? A difficult question considering the place in society of women of that generation. He decided he must not lean on the external, but on an act of faith in a divine person consciously revealed in us. What about baptism then? The act of sprinkling was kept for a while, but it was believed that this was superseded by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The army introduced a dedication service where parents brought their babies as Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple. The explanation satisfied Frank. Nine months flew by. Frank wanted to give up his job so he could serve the Lord in a full-time capacity. Captain Spillett needed someone to help him in an outpost church he'd started in a suburb. 
The door now opening into the ministry was closed six months later. The Second World War was grinding on, requiring more men. The dreaded call-up notice arrived. Surprisingly, Frank passed fit to enter camp. He determined to take his stand for his Lord from the beginning. In camp, Frank found himself in a tent with four other members of his old gang, including Alec Bryson, the boy who lived next door. The weather was snowy, the kind of weather which tempted a fellow to jump into bed before reading the Bible and praying. Frank resisted that urge. It was now or never to take his stand. This was where he'd get his boots and pillows thrown at him for sure. He prepared himself as he knelt to pray. Silence hung heavily in the air as four months snapped shut on the blasphemy which had been tumbling from their lip. Frank sat on his bed as he opened his Bible. What's that you're reading, Frank? It was Alex Bryson. The Bible. Then read it to all of us, Alec ordered. That night led Alex's salvation. Time rolled round for the boys of his platoon to go overseas. They were given inoculations in readiness. One by one, the men collapsed until all were hospitalised. That faulty batch of serum saved the lives of this platoon for most of the others who went to the front from that company didn't return. Frank struggled for months to regain his health. In the meantime, he received his discharge from the military, which left him free to return to work in the Salvation Army. He was sent to assist Alf Herring, officer in charge of the county town corps of Carterton. Alf was a man who loved the Lord with his whole heart. From him, Frank learned that being spiritual didn't replace a sense of humour or practical Christianity. Alf frequently helped his neighbours repair their cars. Leaning over an engine was a good time to share the gospel. You see, Frank, when you're halfway through a job, they know nothing about what they can't tell you to quit, so they have to listen. Alf's wedding was getting close. As soon as his new wedding uniform arrived, he decided to try it on. He no sooner slipped it on when he heard the yelping of a stray dog under the house. The beast had been annoying the two men for some time. Frank, you go out the front door and I'll duck out the back. Between us, we should be able to catch it. Alf said, grabbing the broom as he ran. The dog shot out from under the house and leapt over the fence. Splash! It landed in the neighbor's slip trench, dug as a bomb shelter, but now full of green, slimy water. Hey, Frank, help me over the fence. I'll have to get that dog out or it'll drown. Frank pushed Alf up, but Alf went right over the top into the filthy water with the dog. Damn it, he exclaimed as he threw the dog out. Frank convulsed with laughter. That's strong language from a man who doesn't swear. Shut up and come and help me out. Alf's voice was full of laughter. After all, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine and uniforms will dry clean, he concluded. In this church, Frank met Mrs. Tyler, an 80-year-old widow who delighted to inspire young people to serve God. All of the stories she told as she rocked gently in her chair, Frank loved the best, was the one about her husband. He placed a chair in the middle of the kitchen where I was working. There he'd kneel to pray, thumping the chair at every request he made. The longer he prayed, the louder he shouted, the more he thumped. But he knew how to touch God, she said. Make me a terror to evildoers, he'd shout again and again. 
Her old eyes gleamed at the recollection. You know, he'd go out into the garden on Mondays when the women in the street were hanging out there washing. He'd call out loudly, Lord, save that wicked Mrs. Smith. You know she's drinking again. Yes, she gave her heart to the Lord. He won everyone within earshot. You see, young man, nothing, nothing is achieved without enthusiasm. These words illustrated many of Frank's future sermons. He carried that enthusiasm into Bible college for six months training. The war had not yet ended in July 1945. Men not at the front were regarded as cowards, but this did not deter Frank. God's call was the important thing as he worked hard in preparation for the ministry ahead. Nothing people said would divert Frank from his calling. It seemed that everyone marvelled at Frank's experience except one, me, a student of the 1944 class, as was a fleeting introduction. So this is a the fellow they are making the fuss about. I said to myself, not realising that this man would have upset all of my plans a year later. Frank found college routine tough and regimented. Up at 6.30am for devotions in the classroom. House duties until 7.30am. Breakfast at 8. Everyone had to be in uniform by 9, ready for private devotion. Classes occupied the mornings while afternoons were filled with door-to-door visitation. Study or more classes. Some evenings, there would be a meeting and more study. Fridays meant a half day off. Tough it might have been, but students learnt discipline and self-control. Lessons invaluable in the future. Halfway through the college term, Frank fell victim to influenza. He had difficulty throwing it off no matter what he tried. His work fell behind. There came an ominous call to the principal's office. Houston, you don't seem to be able to cope with the work or your studies. I think you should return home to Wanganui. Frank stared at him in shocked silence. He was being asked to quit. You don't mean that, surely. God has called me to be an officer. Please let me stay. Frank pleaded with tears in his eyes. Principal was reluctant to deal any student such a blow. Well, perhaps I'll give you one more chance. But if your health doesn't improve, I'll have no alternative but to send you home. Henry Darrell, a fellow student, encouraged Frank. You'll make it. Henry knew what it was to battle against terrific odds. He decided when he was 13 years old that he wouldn't go down the path his family followed, for they were thieves spending most of their time in prison. Because Henry had risen above his circumstances, he inspired Frank to do the same. Graduation was looming. The students spent hours discussing where they thought they might be sent, whether it might be social work in an institution or church work in the field. Frank, you'll go to the field for sure. Frank thought so too. His past experience in churches assured that a percentage would go to social work. They always did. Still, on commissioning night, Frank waited anxiously. Cadet Houston, you are promoted to the rank of lieutenant and appointed to the Chamuka boys' home. He was stunned. Social work, mending shoes, cutting boys' hair. Wasn't his calling? Didn't headquarters know that they wouldn't change his appointment now? He'd have to make the most of it. Frank accepted the challenge of caring for the boys.
many of whom were victims of divorce or cruelty. He felt a special compassion for the boy whose hand was scarred when his mother pressed a red-hot penny in his hand to stop him stealing. Such things were abhorrent to Frank's sensitive nature. The boys confided in him as he tried to minister love and understanding to them. He told them of the love of Jesus and some decided to follow him. This made mending shoes, cutting hair and sometimes washing their clothes worthwhile. There were opportunities for weekend preaching in local churches. One weekend, he noticed a lassie officer in the meeting. Me. Captain Rawson, will you come to the platform and give your testimony? Frank asked. As I did so, he felt the Holy Spirit whispering in his spirit. This woman will be your wife. God didn't tell me. Not then. When Frank wanted to take me home, I refused his offer. I've made arrangements to go home with my sister. I'll stay with that arrangement, thank you. You can tell her you are going home with me. Again, I refused. He wasn't going to pressure me into anything. This whole procedure was repeated when we found ourselves at the same place for supper. When I had obeyed the call of God to become a Salvation Army officer, I decided I'd never marry. Rules and regulations stated that officers must marry officers and there were not enough men to go around. If I had to be an old maid, I didn't plan to be a frustrated one, fretting over the what might have been. Still, this episode disturbed me. I guess I could have let him take me home. I was hardly back to my church when a letter arrived marked personal. I giggled as I read the name Frank Houston. He really is determined, I thought. Would you allow me to write to you? Well, I supposed I could do that. In 1946, the Army's rules and regulations required officers to apply for permission to have an understanding, which meant permission to write. 29th of June, 1946. Dear Lieutenant, consideration has been given to your request for an understanding between yourself and Captain Olson. This has been granted from the 28th Institution. When you apply for an engagement, please remember you will both need to apply with copies of medical certificates accompanying your application. Yours sincerely, C. Bracegirdle, Men's Social Secretary. Immediately I was moved, 600 miles to Waiapukurao, a small town in New Zealand's North Island. Getting to know each other wasn't easy when we didn't see each other more than four times in the next year. Writing letters was a poor substitute. Once our year of understanding ended, we were quick to apply for an engagement. Here was another problem. Frank was still a lieutenant. Dear Lieutenant, according to Regulations, Chapter 6, Section 2, Paragraph 1, it is not possible to give recognition of a man officer's engagement during his lieutenancy. You may apply again when you have been promoted to the rank of captain. Yours faithfully. C. Bracegirdle, Men's Social Secretary. Those wretched regulations. After all, the two boys who had been in Frank's class were captains already. Didn't seem fair that Frank should be penalised because he was in social work. We pointed this out to headquarters and then applied the pressure by phone calls. Possibly this helped our superior officers to grant Frank's promotion and the sanctioning of our engagement. Once more, sickness forced him to take time off, much to the army's distress. 
That strained our relationship for a time, but Frank had been told many times in college not to get out of the train while it was still in the tunnel. Well, this was a tunnel experience, and I wasn't about to get off the train, and I did my best to stop Frank from doing it. We were married on 6th of November, 1948. Fortunately, expenses were not too great, and Frank had almost enough three-penny pieces to pay the taxi when we left on our honeymoon. The rest he borrowed from the best man. Five days later, we reported back to our corps, ready to plunge into our work with all the enthusiasm we could muster. Our welcome meeting bade us fight the good fight. I hope that meant against sin, not in our marriage. The scripture informed us that this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and delivered him from all of his troubles. Poor we were. Delivered from our troubles? Not yet. At the end of the evening, when one of the old ladies put up her umbrella, out tumbled a shower of cakes, which she had stolen from the supper table. Well, I guess all our soldiers wouldn't be like that. Within 12 weeks, we had moved to a new appointment and I was pregnant. Frank seemed to be glad he was no longer mending shoes. Nothing equaled the joy of pacing the platform preaching the word of God. It was as though he had experienced the founder's wish to dangle his cadets over his mouth of hell to hear the cries of the damned. No matter how many decisions on a Sunday night, it was never enough. The August self-denial appeal was in full swing when Frank began to complain about a tight banding round his head. He struggled to complete the collection, but the birth of our first child diverted his attention temporarily. The baby signalled her arrival early on Sunday morning. Not today, I thought. I don't have time to have a baby on a Sunday. But Maureen Joyce didn't hear me. Sunday evening, while Father was still preaching, she arrived. Headquarters sent us a letter. 29th of August, 1949. Dear Captain, we do heartily congratulate you over the birth of your daughter and pray that she may bring you much happiness. God is good. You will know that this will lead to an increase in allowance and you will be entitled to draw five pounds per week. Your pension fund will be increased to one shilling, two pence per week and your weight tax will be nine. This will commence with this week's allowance. Signed, H. Goffin. Five shillings extra would be quite useful. For in 1949, sausages were one shilling a pound and eggs one and sixpence a dozen. Frank realised it was depression causing that tight band around his head. He struggled through the collection, but the mountain of Christmas war cries and army publication he had to sell sent him crashing to despair. I marvelled that anyone could get so depressed. A month before our first wedding anniversary, I watched Frank being driven off to hospital, 80 miles away. He was really convinced now that he wouldn't ever amount to anything. God, what are you doing? Don't you care? My heart ached for Frank and for myself as I took over the responsibility of that mountain of war cries. I was getting perilously close to self-pity. A total stranger pulled me out of it. I've been watching you visiting your husband. Mine has been in hospital three months. He's coming home tomorrow. I'm sure your husband will be home soon. She disappeared into a train, but I clung on to her infectious joy. In the next two weeks, I sold the mountain of war cries, packed our belongings and moved into temporary accommodation. It was two and a half months before Frank was told he could come home. The doctor ordered a year off. Who cared? Maureen, 
Daddy's coming home tomorrow. I swung our baby around, making her gurgle with delight. At three months, I wasn't sure she could possibly sense any excitement, but I hold her just the same. The year's leave was no rest. Frank found that gardening was a poor substitute for preaching. When we returned to the ministry, we were sent to a church with 30 members. Finance was scarce. Often there was not enough money to pay the accounts, nor our salary. But we had peace in our hearts, even if I had a difference with the Corps Sergeant Major over taking my toddler to the open-air meetings. Once I feared that Frank might be killed rescuing a family from violence. We had scarcely turned the light out when the back door flung open and footsteps pounded along the passage to our bedroom. Come quickly, Tom's got a gun and the police won't come. He's threatening to shoot us and kill himself. The boy shivered with fear. Frank scrambled into his uniform, fastening the last button as he ran the short distance to the house. Tom stood in the doorway, gun in hand. His mother lay unconscious on the floor. Knocked out by her drunken son when he hit her on the head with a chair. Don't you come in here or I'll shoot you also. Frank had been called to this teenager before. He knew the fellow was serious. Now look, Tom, don't be so foolish. You know that God loves you and your parents do as well. Why are you acting like this? As Frank spoke, Tom backed into the bathroom, locking the door behind him. Tom, give me a gun. I'm going to kill myself. For half an hour, the conversation swung back and forth through the locked door. Suddenly, Tom staggered from the bathroom, flung his gun on the floor and dropped into bed to sleep off his bout of drinking. Frank walked off on wobbly legs. He walked home. God, you didn't tell me I'd have to be dealing with this. Situations like, like this when you called me, Frank told the Lord. I thought the ministry would be peaceful. Nor did we expect the undeserved gossip. A misunderstanding occurred when our Australian terrier was frequently seen sitting outside the local pub. Didn't the people realise the dog followed our neighbour and would not come home without him? A sprinkling of converts gave their lives to the Lord in the 12 months we were in Hawera. But this was simply not enough to satisfy a heart hungry to win souls. Frank wanted more of God. He knelt at the altar at officers' councils, searching for the elusive experience called holiness. He never found it. Where was the power of the early salvationists? The miraculous happenings when people fell down in glorious fits. Lord, I long to see all of you, all your people. I long to see all you have for your people. Frank prayed. In our next church, God will give us a taste of his power. The full answer was some years away.